Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jiggs Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be glad you did. With your watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your continued support and interest in the program. This episode features drummer-composer Kim Yancey, an original member of the great Dayton, Ohio funk band of the late 1970s and 1980s, Sun. He brought his jazz chops to the funky cosmic stew, collaborating with bandmates like Sun leader and multi-instrumentalist Byron Bird, and later guitar players Keith Cheatham and Sheldon Reynolds, to record five sizzling albums. The first one, 1976, contained their first significant hit, and the jamming cut that drew me into Sun's rays, Want to Make Love Come Flick My Bick. That included Roger and Lester Troutman several years before they launched their own successful careers and was probably the first time on record Roger using that famous voice box. The next four records for Sun included gems like Light Me Up, Conscience, Boogie Bopper, Organ Grinder, Sun Is Here, Dance, Do What You Want to Do, Long Drain Out Thing, You Don't Have to Worry, Radiation Level, and Hot Spot. After Yancey left in 1980, Sun would go on to release three more albums through 1984, including those bearing the dance floor jams, Slam Dunk the Funk, and Legs Bring Out the Wolf in Me. During Yancey's tenure, the band amassed seven charted R&B singles. Amazingly, Yancey's greatest success still lay ahead of him, and not as an R&B singer or performer as he had envisioned. He fell into making jingles for various products and businesses, doing so well with it, that that became his full-time occupation. He grew an advertising agency that was so successful, after 15 years, he, he sold it. He then co-founded North America's premier women's business network called eWomen Network, which grew to more than 500,000 members in 118 chapters across the U.S. and Canada. Since 2014, he's also been leading Live Happy, which promotes happiness through education, community events, a dedicated magazine, and more. Although he's kept the pace of entrepreneurship, marketing, and business more than the beat of funk drumming the past 35 years, the tunes Yancey laid down as part of Sun are as face-melting and beloved by fans today as they ever were. Here from his Dallas-based offices, Yancey lights up talking about those precious times of yore that have become funk lore. His passion is infectious as he tells us what made Sun shine so intensely. So, now... Kim is here. Kim. Kim is here. Kim. Kim is here. I'm delighted to welcome to Truth and Rhythm, Mr. Kim Yancey, drummer and original member of the great Dayton, Ohio funk band, Sun. That was back in the late 1970s, and since then, he's become even more renowned outside of music for his tremendous success in the business world. Thank you so much for joining me, Kim. How are you? Hey, Scott. I'm really great. Excited about doing this interview with you. You know, I've, I've looked at your career and what you've been doing, too. You're quite prolific, and I love the fact that you're in the funk, and, uh, you know, you're just expanding the whole legacy of the genre. Doing my little part, whatever I can, you know? You are, man. You are. Well, thank you so much. And you're coming to us today. Are you in Texas? I'm in Dallas, Texas, in my office on the uh, fifth fifth of six floors here in our building and 
enjoying some beautiful sunshine here in Dallas. And uh, yeah, right here. How, how long have you been in that area? 22 years. This is wow. my 20, yeah, 22 years in Dallas. I can't believe it. Uh, I left, I'm, I'm now 63 years old and I left Dallas, I mean, left Dayton, Ohio, uh, right when I was turning um, 40. Wow. So, well, I don't know how you feel about this, but I got to confess that I'm a lifelong Dallas Cowboys fan. You know what? I was a lifetime Dallas Cowboy fan too. I, you know, so back in Dayton, um, you know, hey, that was my team. Now, let me tell you something very, very exciting. Um, so we moved here. I was a big Emmett Smith fan. That year they won all Super Bowls, right, with Troy Aikman and and uh, Michael and all, Michael Irvin and all those guys. So anyway, I remember seeing a documentary about this incredible running back, Emmett Smith, at, being at home in Dayton, watching TV. And I was, you know, I don't you know, my late 20s or whatever. And and uh, I just remember, you know, how the, the press really surrounded this guy. And then, you know, moving to Dallas and he was like a, you know, I mean, just a living, breathing, walking around legend here in town, you know, and um, just really admired the guy. And then he got on Dancing with the Stars. And of course, he won that. And I ended up producing a movie. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tie all this together. But I, I ended up producing a movie called The Glow Project, which happened to feature 15 women. Half of them were women entrepreneurs doing millions of dollars. And the other half were top corporate achievers like Sheila Johnson, who her and her husband co-founded BET. And so I did this whole thing about women, you know, living and finding their glow. And glow was their word for finding their passion. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So we did a premiere of our movie in New York City at the Angelica Theater. And then we also did a premiere of our movie here in Dallas. And into the premiere of our movie comes Emmett Smith and his wife, Pat Smith. I mean, I'm, I'm like blown away. You know, I'm trying to be as cool as I can, but I'm like, I'm a big fan of Emmett Smith. And after the movie premiere and all that stuff, uh, the next day I had a private party at my house in Plano, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. And my son, the, there was a knock at the door and people were coming, but my son, my young son who's a football fan, went to the door, opened the door, and the first person in was Pat Smith, Emmett's wife, who is drop dead gorgeous. So he opens the door to, with her. He, never mind her. My son was more concerned of, about of who was behind her, which was Emmett Smith. And I remember my son saw Emmett coming into our house going, oh, wow, with his eyes all bugged out of his head. He just couldn't believe it. And, um, and I couldn't believe it either. I was just a little more composed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, I could go on talking about the Cowboys forever. Um, I used yeah. to go to their training camp down at Thousand Oaks. I lived in Los. I grew up in Los Angeles. Yeah. And I don't know if you can see behind me there, but um, back there is a signed Roger Staubach and yeah uh, Troy Aikman. And when they won the the Super Bowls, you were talking about over there. So yeah, yeah, very That's cool. cool. <laughs> all right. Well, you ready to talk some music and some let's of talk, uh, let's all talk right. music? Yeah. Okay. So um, want to go way back, dial it way back. Uh, where were you born originally? Uh, how did you grow up and when did you first get into music? So I was originally born in Texas. I joke with my family all the time. I'm the only genuine Texan in the group, but I was born in Texas. My father was in the, uh, the army. And um, so you know, after I was born, they, about a year later, they moved to Dayton, Ohio, where my family's from. 
And so, you know, being in Dayton, I lived on a street called Leland in uh, West Dayton and um, cousins lived all around there and, you know, just having a good time. I mean, I had so much fun growing up and playing in the playground and all the crazy stuff kids do. But, um, you know, it was around probably, you know, the fourth grade. Um, I remember hearing um, some music being played in the neighborhood. And there are these guys, man. They 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 were not playing funk music, but it was like um, it was it was rock with a strong backbeat, you know. But they're playing down in their basement, and I mean, I was mesmerized. I mean, I just saw these guys playing, and it just like, you know, it, it just I, I was wowed by it. And uh, you know, I just decided, you know, man, that's 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 what I'm I, I want to do, and I. And I, I'd ima I imagine it's this way with all musicians, you know, I've never really asked, but you know, like, you know, why do you play guitar? Why do you play keyboards? Why do you play drums? I think, you know, we're just, you know, your brain is wired in a certain way and you just gravitate toward one thing or a particular thing that, you know, and in my particular case, I was just mesmerized by the drummer. You know, I saw, I saw all those things that he was hitting and all the things he was doing. I just thought it's very cool the way the drummer has control of the band, you know? And um, you know, from that point on, man, my I I um I wanted to play drums. And I remember going to my father, who um, uh, worked two jobs in Dayton. Um, at that time, uh, the big employer employer was like General Motors, you know, the car industry. And so I just uh, it, you know told my dad, you know, that I really wanted to play the drums, and you know, would he give me a set of drums and all of that? And and, and we had very little money, you know. But uh, he got me um, uh, for Christmas. I got the biggest surprise of my life. I uh, I got a drum. I didn't get drums. I got a drum. I got a snare drum. <laughs> How old were you then? <laughs> yeah. And and uh, what age were you? Uh, yeah, I was, I was breaking the uh, you know like fourth grade. How old are you in fourth grade? I don't know. Was that nine, nine, nine like or that? ten? Yeah. Yeah, in that area. So he got me a drum. And um, he just said to me, look, son, he says, you know, <laughs> those drums are pretty expensive. Let's just see if, if uh, this is something you really, really want to do. And so I wore the skin off that snare drum. I mean, I'd played it and played it and played it. And uh, he, uh, the next Christmas, took another Christmas, but the next Christmas he got me my first drum set. And that's, uh, that's how it all started for me, that drum set. And did you get the lessons or when did you first? Well, you know, that's the, the <laughs> so I got the drum set and I'm I'm practicing down in the basement. My mother can't stand it. I mean, to her, it's like, you know, I, I can even today remember her opening the basement door saying, will you get off those damn drums? <laughs> and so they I think they figured, let's get him some lessons. So I started taking some lessons. I took lessons for. Um, you know, I really got into some fundamentals about how to hold the sticks and all that stuff and the different rudiments and, and that kind of thing. So I probably took drum lessons for about, you know, three months, four months. That was all uh, that was all that was kind of available in the family budget. And that was fine because, I you know, I felt like, you know, I was just off into the races, you know. And then I had a buddy, you know, what's really cool about Dayton was just down the street, there was another guy that was two years older than me, and he, he played trombone and piano. He's really gifted. His name is John Derrickson. And um, John would, would have his piano there, and I had drums, so John would invite me down, bring the set down, man, and, 
and let's jam. And so I had a, a jamming buddy, man, that, that was older and, and better than me. I mean, he, as a performer, as a, as a, as a musician, he was better than me, but he, you know, he tolerated me on the drums and let me play songs with him. And uh, I mean, we just had a blast, just, just having fun. So every chance I could, and John said, Hey man, come on down. You want to play some music? And I said, let's do it. And I would go down and play with, play, uh, play with him. What kind of songs were you playing? You know, we were doing a mixture of stuff, a lot of jazz, a lot of stuff that he would just improvise, you know, just made up on the spot. It was a lot of jazz. I remember, um, oh man, uh, I mean, everything from a Y50 to, you know, just just a, a mixture of stuff. We were both big uh, Quincy Jones fans. We played Quincy Jones. Um, you know, he would just take me through the, the paces. So whatever he would play, you know, I would just kick in with it. You know, if he need me to, need, needed me to shuffle or whatever the case may be, I would just intuitively just go with it, you know? So just, just a mixed bag. We actually weren't playing too much funk because it was just me and the keyboards and he was just, he, you know, he, he had more of a jazz combination, classical uh, kind of feel to what he could do, you know? All I know is it was music and we were grooving. <laughs> At what point did you stop getting on your mom's nerves? You know, I kept, you know, I kept playing, and I ended up joining. Um, uh, the, you know, I would um, started my own little band, believe it or not. And this is, you know, you're dealing with the Beatles and the Monkeys and all that kind of stuff. And so I started a band, and got some guys that were in my grade school. This was like uh, seventh grade, and um, put together a band called Kim and the Killers. That was the name of it, Kim and the Killers. And I had, I, I made a little cover for my bass drum, you know, because that's how those bands did it back then, right? They had the drums and the name of the band was on the drums and all that. And of course I wanted to be, you know, back then I thought, you know, hey, I'm the leader of the band, so I'll put my name, I'll put my name on it. <laughs> and so these guys, uh, you know, their parents got them a guitar, someone else got them a bass guitar, and we're there playing, you know, Tommy Shandells and, you know, just just all the pop music that was being played on the radio stations at that time, you know, and um, just 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 goofing off and having dreams of one day having a record deal, you know, just thinking about that, you know. But, you know, that season, it's interesting, is that continued to do that until um, I got out of grade school and went to my went to uh, high school. And I went in Dayton, I went to a school called Chaminade that was in downtown Dayton. And um, they had this jazz lab band. I'd never seen anything like it. And we, I went to an assembly and all of a sudden I'm seeing these guys, they aren't playing just the marching band stuff. They're playing some cool, really hip jazz fusion, kind of smooth jazz fusion with a funk feel to it. And that blew my mind. I mean, that just, I'm watching how good and how smooth these guys were. And, um, uh, you know, tried to get into uh, that band, but they had another drummer that was in it that was more seasoned. I ended up leaving Chaminade and my junior and senior year going to Meadowdale High School in Dayton. And at Meadowdale, I auditioned and I beat out the drummer that was with their jazz lab band. So now I'm playing with them and leading that band with like 17 musicians in it playing jazz and uh you know, you know, just swing, swing band jazz stuff. And that was like really, really cool. I, I mean, I just loved it. Just loved it, loved it. And then from there, uh, after I got out of high school, I um, 
you know, started my own band. I started my own band, the new nightclubs. It was called Lowdown Outrage was the name of the band. And we had, you know, a couple of horns. We did Chicago. We did Earth, Wind and Fire. We did, you know, we, we just gravitate towards the horn sound, you know, bass and drums and everything else uh, on it. Let me, let me mute this. Let me stop this. And um, we um, um, started playing nightclubs. We started, you know, doing night, nightclub gigs and, uh, you know, just having a great time. I started doing a little singing there back on the drum, you know, while I was playing and mixing it up. Now, but that was, you know, let me tell you, that, that was an interesting lesson for me because, you know, I had assembled the best musicians that, you know, that I could find. It was a real mixed bag of performers and singers. There was a guy named Terry Harris, who was unbelievable guitar player, lives in Dayton, still plays. Um, you know, the, we had a female, you know, several different female singers, but it was just a lot of fun. But in that period, in that time period, Another band in Dayton called the Overnight Low uh, was really, man, tearing it up in Dayton. I mean, you know, just phenomenal, talented band with a bunch of guys that had gone to Roosevelt and some of them had gone to Roth. And um, they had played an outdoor concert in Dayton. And I remember watching these guys and, you know, it was just literally just, you know, just blown away by the sound, the professionalism. I mean, I immediately knew that, you know, what, you know, just not only was it a band, but like, if only I could play with a band like that. And incredibly, the trumpet player of the band lived on the same block where my friend John lived, who played keyboards down the street. And even though I had started my own band and everything else, John and I were such good friends, Scott, that, you know, every chance we'd get, we would still kick it in his basement with him on keyboards and me playing drums. We just, you know, I had gotten much better. And and um, anyway, so the trumpet player in the overnight low came down and heard us playing, came over to John's house. And without me even thinking about it, realizing it, he um, liked my playing to the point that he went back to his band because they were looking for a new drummer. Now listen to this, listen to how this all works in Dayton. The drummer for the overnight low at the time was a guy named Greg, who was the original drummer for the Ohio Players, the original drummer who played with Junie and all those guys. Greg um, was replaced from the Ohio Players with another guy named Jimmy Williams, Diamond, who was the drummer in the overnight low for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And so through Jimmy taking the place of the original drummer of the Ohio Players, that drummer went to the overnight low. And then when the trumpet player found me and he introduced me to the band, they came and saw me play. And they decided that that uh, they liked my way of playing and hired me to take the place of the original drummer for the Ohio players to play with the overnight low. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that wild? Yeah. Just the way that that whole thing moved around. Yeah. Now, what's what's interesting about the overnight low is the overnight low, who's, which was led by Byron Bird, who I love and respect tremendously, uh, and is a good friend, was the group that later became Sun. So, how much, um, how long was it overnight low before it became Sun? Well, here's the interesting thing. <laughs> this is this is true transparency, right? 
So I play with the overnight low. We're doing lots of cover songs and those kinds of things. But I was more, I was actually, I was more jazz influenced than I was funk influenced. And these guys could really play some funk, man. I mean, they could really, and they really wanted, you know, they they wanted more, um, um, that, that, that edge that I had of playing more jazz, they wanted me to get away from that and get more into, you know, the, the funk style that they had. And it was fantastic. And, um, you know, I worked and worked and worked with the band. and But I ended up getting fired from the band. I remember we did some gig in Indiana, and I felt like it was one of my best gigs ever with the band. But they had already decided that there was someone else that they felt, you know, just was you know, ultimately funkier and better for the band. And so um, I got fired. I got I got fired in Indiana, and uh, and I mean you talk about you know feeling like a dog licking your wounds. I mean I just felt like horrible. I, I mean I I was practicing day and night trying to get it, trying to please the guys, you know to 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 to, to measure up. But ended up getting fired out of that band. Now after I'd gotten fired, the band went through some other changes, and the band ended up. Um, you know, kind of taking a hiatus. I mean, just, you know, the leader of the band, I, I think there was some other friction going on inside the band. You know, bands are really no different than a family or no different than a career sometimes on a, you know, in corporate America. And um, so Byron, I remember Byron ended up, um, he was such a, Byron had a very, who was the, who was the, who was the sax player and, and flutist and songwriter and singer, excellent in all those areas. Byron ended up getting an office space in the largest building, tallest building in Dayton. I think it was the uh, um, the First National Plaza or something. I can't remember the name of it, but it was like, you know, 22 stories or something and ended up getting an office in that building. And there were just there were just two offices. You'd walk in. There's like the reception area. And the next office was Byron. There was no receptions in there. That's, that room was vacant. And I remember going in there to talk with Byron and because I was friends with him and um, he uh, told me that he was uh, uh, using that office to book more gigs for the overnight low. And at the same time, he was uh, booking other people. And we were actually booking the Commodores, um, you know, with Lionel Richie and a whole bunch of other people. So I actually ended up asking him, hey, man, can I work here? I mean, I just love the fact that he was in an office in a professional area. I thought, man, let me let me go to work. He says, look, I can't pay you. I said, well, can I get a commission or something? <laughs> you know, how about if I just help out and, and contribute? And if you like what I'm doing, you know, let me get a commission off some of this stuff. So I ended up helping him and and ended up, you know, booking a lot of bands and doing some things. And, you know, our friendship continued to grow. And so all during this period, um, you know, Overnight Low is doing some gigs, not gigs, but they end up not playing. So here's the interesting thing. Um, the Overnight Low had a manager. His name was Bo Ray Fleming. Bo was the manager for a group called Mandrell. Real funky, hip, you know, great, great band. And uh, Bo was managing uh, the the uh, Overnight Low because he liked the style. He felt it was similar to like what Mandrell was doing. I mean, he, he just liked where the band was coming from and had connections. And so Bo was working on a deal for uh, deal for them, for, for, for the Overnight Low. And all during this period, the overnight low as it was ends up, you know, just kind of disbanding. And during that period, Bo gets a deal with Capitol Records. And literally, 
the Larkin Arnold for Capitol Records comes into Dayton, Ohio. And I remember Byron calling me and saying, hey, listen, we got the uh, the head of A&R for Capitol Records is in Dayton. And he is here because he wants to sign the new band. And the new band had a new name, and that was Sun. And the next thing I know, we got a record deal with Capitol Records and I'm recruited back in the band as the drummer of Sun. And I'm telling you, it was like fast and furious. I mean, uh, start working on the first album. At that time, um, we were friends with Roger Trotman, his brother Lester, and uh, uh, Lester who played drums. And um, the band was in different, uh, you know, was not playing together as normal. And so we brought in Roger and. Lester and these guys went into the studio down in Cincinnati and they started banging out and, and, and playing songs that Byron had written. And the next thing you know, we've got our first album uh, called Wanna Make Love Come Flick My Vic. And um, uh, in fact, the original name was Live On, Dream On, but the song Wanna Make Love Come Flick My Vic was so, was so popular, it became number one in lots of markets all over the country that they retitled the album and, and, and changed the whole front cover of the album to reflect the to reflect the new single, so there we are. Got this band. Um, we're on Soul Train. We're playing all over the country, and it's a whole new. Um, it's 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 members of the Overnight Low, and and this time with me back as the drummer, and uh, a new world began for me. Wow, that's incredible! Incredible the way that all came together. So, yeah, and think about and think about Roger Trotman. That was the first time he had played a talk box on a song in "Want to Make Love Come Flick My Bick." He the, the chorus in that song was Roger Trotman on the talk box. Yeah, and, and I didn't know that till much later, but I knew that song immediately because it was all over the airwaves. Yeah, uh, at least the stations I listened to in Los Angeles, like K Day, and uh, that was a song that introduced me to the band. And right, I the single, then about the album, and. Um, I gotta tell you, I was surprised that that song was not even a bigger hit because it seemed to capture, you know, it had that catchphrase that was so big from the commercial then. Yes, and, and I thought it should have crossed over even. Yeah, it's a you know, it, it's a a tough thing when it comes to music. You know, I mean, I hear songs all the time that I think should be mega super hits because they are to me. But you know, um, the record industry being what it is, and timing, and what stations are playing what, and you know, the stars need to align so often with these songs, you know, for everything to happen at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, man, it was popular. I mean, we had a great time out there and people loved, you know, loved that album. They loved the whole thing. It was a lot of fun. What, what was it like when it, when it hit? Uh, you guys were just, uh, couldn't believe it or what? Yeah, you know, I mean, when you hear your music on the radio, it is... A real surreal experience in its own way it's an out-of-body experience you know it's so different scott if you can imagine like you know back then man nobody was walking around with with cameras uh you know i mean and and when you're in your 20s too like that um it, it's like what do you want to call it there's a there, there's a there's an aloofness there is a, a taken for grantedness you know you're not as mindful 
you're not as, you know, in terms of living in the moment, your head is always into the next thing and going and going. And hey, here we, here's where we are right now. I remember watching in Billboard, I'd see our record. There it was, 50 with a bullet, okay? Bullet meant that it was a fast moving record. And then the next week when Billboard came out, it was 40 with a bullet. And then the next week it comes out, it's, you know, it's 28 with a bullet. I mean, you're, you're watching this and you're, and in the meantime, the phones are ringing. People are booking you. Radio stations want you to come into their market because while it might be 21 with the bullet or 28 with the bullet on Billboard magazine, it might be number one in Los Angeles, which in our case, that was the case. We would be number one in bunches in, in bunch of, in a bunch of cities, LA, number one, D Detroit, number one, Dayton, Ohio, number, I mean, just all over the place. And so, um, but it, you know, you're seeing your record climb, you're seeing it climb, you're seeing it, you're seeing it climb. So it's, you know, I will tell you with 50-50 hindsight when you look at this. And by the way, you know, I'm not talking about like a, like a monster, you know, smash hit. I mean, to us, it was it felt like that to us. But I mean, when I think about people today, you know, um, you know, you know Jay Z and 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 you know what they're go, you know what what they experience when they have a monster hit. I mean, it's very different in our time when we were doing this, but I, but I tell you, it was, it was, um, it was exciting. You know, it was exciting. You know, I, um, in retrospect, I wish we were taking pictures. I wish we were writing, writing down more, documenting more mm -hmm. that, you know, that, that just wasn't the time, but it was, it was exciting. It was really great going into a music store and, you know, and everybody would go in and, and, that's when the time when people would pull albums out and you're standing there and you're reading the album liner and looking yeah. and you're, you're going through the records and it was really fun going there and there'd be people, you pull up in your bus. Um, we had a wonderful big bus and we'd pull up and there'd be hundreds of people there and they're clapping and they're shouting sun and they're there and they want you to sign their album and all that. I mean, I just, I remember there was a one mother in particular came up to me and her daughter and, and her mother came and her daughter and she was young. I want to say she was 10 years old or something. And I remember her mother was saying, you're her favorite. She would say to me, you're, she just loves you. And, you know, would you sign this? And, you know, and I remember signing it. I got down on one knee and told her how much I appreciated her loving the band and um, uh, how that she was my favorite little fan too. You know, I mean, it's just, those, you know, those moments were really, uh, were really great. Did you feel like yeah. on that first record that you had finally perfected your funk style? No, I didn't. I didn't. I know, you know, I, I was constantly pushing constantly, you know, just working on it. You know, I, I did not feel, you know, what I call the confidence and the assured, assuredness, let's put it that way until our third album. And the third album was a was a pinnacle album for us. I mean, while we had, you know, really great stuff on the first album, this the second album, we had a song that Byron wrote called I'm Your Conscience. Uh, Time is passing. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of, you know, really cool stuff on that album. But we had an interesting experience because five of the guys in the band um, decided they were not going to go in and cut the third album with us. And they had been working on some other stuff and they wanted really, I mean, they just, it was a mutiny. I mean, they wanted me out. They wanted some things changed. They wanted, I even think they wanted Byron out, you know, 
Um, but basically there was like, it was, it was an interesting thing. It was, it was a walkout. It was like five of the guys deciding, you know, was it more money or creativity or what? I, I think it was a combination of money, creativity, direction. It was just, you know, just belief systems. Our belief systems weren't in alignment, you know? And I have to say to you though, Scott, it was the best thing that could have ever happened to, 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 to me personally. And I think to the band. Um, and, and I say that because when you, in any organization, whether it's a band or a company, if you got people who don't want to be there, if you got people where the energy is negative, it, it's the best thing is for people to go their separate ways. I mean, it was the best thing because that allowed them to find whatever expression they were looking for. But it also what it did is it opened up opportunities for other people in the band. I, for one, was an intimid was a intimidated songwriter. In other words, the other guys were so good and so prolific with what they did and their approach that I was afraid that the songs or the melodies that I was hearing in my head would be scoffed, you know, be laughed at, that, you know, just weren't as significant. And it was only through their leaving. Again, both sides benefited from this because they were able to express themselves in a different way. So those guys became, most of those guys became the group Dayton. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so they went to another group, Sean Sandridge and Chris Jones, who who um, has left, you know, has departed. He passed away a couple of years ago. But most of them all went to the group Dayton and they had their sound. But we found a different sound. We found a something that was more authentic for us at that time. And uh, it was my first time writing songs on a personal level. And I remember um, being in a hotel room and um, I wrote the song, Sun Is Here. And, um, it, you know, it, it was amazing, you know, doing that song and before the song ever came out, we were playing it live and we knew that we had a hit song with that song because of the way the audience was reacting. I mean, the audience was just reacting like crazy. And, you know, most people don't know, we were we were also on that record, we, we, uh, we added the ooh, ooh, and we were the first group ever to put ooh-oohs on a song. In fact, we had finished doing Sun Is Here, had recorded it. Johnny Wilder of Heat Wave was in Dayton for a visit. And this is before, <laughs> this is before, his, um, before his accident. And Johnny Wilder, we came over to the Sun Rehearsal Studio and they had finished Groove Line. And Johnny came in and we played Sun Is Here and he was like, man, he says, I love that song. And then before the song ended, he heard, he heard the ooh, ooh, and he says, man, what's that? And we told him that that's something that we had picked up and people started doing it all through the South. And he was like, just digging on that. And do you know, he held up Groove Line and went back and added the ooh, oohs to Groove Line. <laughs> Well, it, cer it certainly added a lot to that song. You know, it was funny. Yeah, he added, he had not heard it before. And uh, and they're fantastic, you know. But um, yeah, so so we did, so so we were playing Son of And so that was, that's when, I mean, the, the things we were doing, the bass lines, you know, my own personal playing. I mean, that's when my confidence really came in, you know. 
And there's another song that I did on that album that that uh, that I wrote um, with Keith Cheatham called I Had a Choice. And to this day, that ballad, I Had a Choice, is the most played record of sons of all time. I mean, if you go to YouTube and you put son on Soul Train on YouTube and, you know, and you put I had a, and you look for I Had a Choice, you will see that that song has more listens, more people listening to I Had a Choice than anything we've ever done. Hmm. I mean, by millions. Well, Keith Cheatham is a tremendous rhythm player, too. Man, I don't know anybody like Keith Cheatham. I, I mean, rhythm. I mean, I, I'm talking about rhythm, precision, but the cleanness, the, how clean he is as a rhythm guitar player. He, he's, he's phenomenal. He's a fantastic songwriter, um, a super singer. <laughs> I mean, the guy's got an incredible range, you know. I mean, he's gifted. Keith is, is, is really gifted. I want to just step back for one minute, uh, Kim, if I could, to that second album, because um, what really stood out to me about that was it came in orange vinyl. Yes. And yep. I remember buying it and it was so cool. It was like the sun. And um, and I thought that that um, Come Flick My Back was definitely the strongest single song. But that album, to me, definitely was a progression. And the third album was even more of a progression, as you're talking about. Um, but that second one also had uh, Organ Grinder was a great track. Yes. Um, and, and on that um, third one, uh, it also had um, Long Drawn Out Thing. Yeah, yeah, Long Drawn Out Thing was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, Long Drawn Out Thing was, that was, we that one we made up in the studio. We were in the studio and we were just playing and Curtis just, I mean, hit it with that bass line and we were just, and, and we were just having a ton of fun. Just That was just raw, just having tons of fun and Keith with his, his tasteful but smart picking and grooves. I mean, man, we were just like, yeah, that was that was that was great. 